This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for educational and informational purposes only. All right, Warriors, welcome back to part two of this wonderful series that we're trying to cover here um, on Cheat Codes called What Just Happened, the best of sickle cell conferences. Part one of this was looking at curative therapies when Dr. Drew and Dr. Mike broke down a few of the data presented at ASH um, and, and had some really good, tough questions from Dr. Bailey and uh, Ms. Blaylark. So I'm, I'm excited for part two here. We're going to dive into pipeline therapy. So we talk about therapies that cure. Now we're going to talk about therapies that help. So, so, so let's, let's move into that. Miss um, Blaylark, let, let's, let's, let's kick it over to you. Where do you want to go with pipeline therapies? Well, pipeline therapies are important because they're based off of what we've learned from others who may have come before them. And so, you know, I know that um, Agios is working on something pretty exciting that that we should all get some better understanding about. Uh, who'd like to talk about that? Dr. Callahan, how about you? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, Agios is our sponsor today, but uh, I think in an unbiased way, I can be really excited about what they're working on. So this is an uh, um, abstract that they presented at ASH, and it's uh, got a really long title. It's called a Phase One Multiple Ascending Dose Study of Safety, Tolerability, Pharmacokinetics, Pharmacodynamics of Metapavat AG348 in Subjects with Sickle Cell Disease. So I'm going to break that down a little bit. So these uh, small molecules are like the typical drugs we take. Usually they have a long life cycle, so usually they find a target and they screen a lot of compounds for something that works. They test it out in cells. It looks promising. They test it out in animals. It looks promising. Um, then they test it out in bigger animals. Eventually, um, when they feel like it's safe and promising, they go into what's called a phase one study. And a phase one study is really to figure out, is this drug safe? What dose can we use it at? And usually there's a phase one A and they did a huge phase one A with this drug with uh, 48 patients. Um, and those are people who don't have a disease. They're just testing out in, in uh, people to see if it's safe and measure levels and see what the right dose is. And in that study, they'd give uh, what they call the single ascending dose. So you get one dose. And then if that dose is safe, they move to a higher dose and a higher dose and a higher dose until it's not safe or until they get to what they think is the highest reasonable dose. But most drugs, we don't just take once. So you need to do what's called a multiple ascending dose, where you take the same dose every day for a couple of weeks to make sure it's safe if you're taking it regularly. Um, and then they try higher and higher doses of that. So based on that study in, in healthy people, they came up with a dose that they thought would be good to start with in sickle cell and then ascended uh, the dose from there. So they tested doses between five and uh, 100 milligrams a day. Um, in people with sickle cell. So that's why it's called a, a multiple ascending dose. And what they were looking for is, is it safe? Are you having side effects? And then they wanna see what levels are they getting and how is that affecting the sickle cell? So that's the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics part of it. So what is metapavat? So it's a, a small molecule and it, it, it does something really cool. It stabilizes an enzyme. So um, we have all sorts of different um, enzymes in our body that do different things, um, but this works on an enzyme that's involved in something called glycolysis. And glycolysis is basically how we take sugar and make energy. One of the steps in glycolysis involves an enzyme called pyruvate kinase. And there are some people who have problems with that, and they actually, in part, develop metapavat to, to help those people. And they've done a study, it was published in the New England Journal for that disease, but they said, you know, it, it stabilizes this enzyme and that might have a beneficial effect in sickle cell. And one of the reasons it would have a beneficial effect in sickle cell is because um, one of the side products of this glycolysis is something called 2,3-DPG. And it affects how our hemoglobin holds on to oxygen. If you have a lot of it, it stabilizes the sickle cells. It stabilizes the sickling um, polymer of the hemoglobin. And this pathway is also involved in making energy, ATP. And we know sickle cells get low in energy and part of that uh, results in the cells breaking down easily. So they're hoping by stabilizing this enzyme, it works better. We get less of that 2,3-DPG, less sickling, more ATP in our cells, and, and that protects us from sickling. So um, did it work? 
So they, they did this study in uh, nine people with sickle cell who had to be at least 18. Um, they had to have hemoglobins of seven and adequate uh, organ function, and they couldn't be on transfusions. Um, they could be on hydroxyurea or L-glutamine, and most of them were on hydroxyurea. Um, and they tested it at uh, doses of 5, 20, 50, and 100. Um, and then after they stopped the medicine, they tapered it off a little bit. And so the, the punchline was that it was safe. Um, there were very few um, adverse events on the study. Most of them were nausea or headaches, um, mostly at the higher doses. It was, it was well tolerated. There was a concern that when uh, one of the patients was tapering off and the medicine was going away, they got a pain episode and they thought that could be from that. So they extended the taper a little bit, but they also looked at how well did it work? So it did what they thought it should do. Um, it decreased the 2,3 DPG, um, it increased the ATP um, and it resulted in, in less sickling. Um, so they had uh, patients who came into the study, their hemoglobin went up by about a little over one gram um, during the study, and they had, uh, uh, at the higher doses, a um, 50% increase in ATP. So I would say, you know, this is, again, an early phase study, but it looks like it passed the early phase. It's, it's safe enough. It's tolerable enough. It looks like it has promise and can move on to a, another trial to see if it, if it really works to prevent sickle cell complications. We're going to talk about Oxprita later, but you know, these, right. these drugs that increase hemoglobin, this is a, this is a new thing, right? This is where we're going down this path and, and yeah. we've been seeing it in our patients and we, we, we are pretty well aware of what anemia means in our patients, why anemia is a problem. So uh, I'm excited about this path that we're walking down. Yeah. But I think this, you know, it increases your hemoglobin, which is a good in and of itself, higher hemoglobins are associated with better outcomes, but it also decreases hemolysis. The cells are breaking down less. We have less mm -hmm. free hemoglobin. We know that causes a lot of damage. So we have one drug out there that does this now. This does it in a little different way, and it's good to have lots of tools. You know, the data around ATP, guys, my sickle cell uh, partners here, it's interesting. I, you know, one of the ways that I've talked to patients about this is by talking about how this drug helps refuel red blood cells. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and that ATP piece of it, that energy piece of it, the red blood cell health piece of it mm -hmm. is an interesting angle. What do you guys, I mean, what do you guys make of that, that energy ATP data? I mean, is that like, a, does that catch your eye as, as sickle cell docs? Is that something it that you're like? my oh. eye is the term red cell health. I don't think that we have ever talked about that mm -hmm. in sickle cell before. We've talked about crises. We've talked mm -hmm. about the inflammation and vasal occlusion. We have not talked about making your red blood cells healthy. And so I'm starting to talk to my patients yeah. that way. If companies are going to come out with something new that's based on a particular way to approach sickle cell, we also have to make sure that patients and caregivers understand the value of that. And so having those discussions even prior to all of these new um, yeah. ways of looking at sickle cell really is, is like preparing the field for the baseball game. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, right. if I were a patient and, and somebody told me, look, I've got a drug specially for sickle cell patients that's making your red blood cells healthier. If I were a patient, I'd stick, I'd, I'd hold my chest out and stick my head up. You mean they made it just for me? Yeah. yeah, they made it just for you. And so that's, we're talking about several drugs that sort of fit into that category. Yeah, they're more likely to stay on board. They're more likely to have the buy-in when they understand their why. You, you say, look, if it's going to make your cells healthy, but just like any other vitamin, any other thing you got to take, you got to take it for a while. That's right. That's right. Back to um, what you were saying as well. Uh, yes, it absolutely gets my sickle cell science nerdy brain excited because that's not just the energy. And I think even people that just remember basic biology, you know that ATP is that energy source. And yeah. um, I've not seen these kinds of discussions before, like Dr. Smith said, and it's incredibly exciting. Well, so going down that path, what do we have next on our docket? Well, let's learn more about what Forma is doing. I hear they're doing something exciting as well. Uh, Dr. Estep, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So to, to piggyback a little bit on what Dr. C just presented, this uh, whole pyruvate kinase pathway uh, is now um, very interesting as a therapeutic target. And Forma Therapeutics also has a 
a molecule that does something similar to the Agios product. So this is the, the name of this abstract is uh, FT4202. So that's Forma Therapeutics 4202nd molecule, I suppose. <laughs> Doesn't even have a real name yet. It also is a, an activator of pyruvate kinase um, and it demonstrates uh, within this abstract, they're demonstrating the proof of mechanism and proof of concept after a single dose and then after multiple daily doses in a phase one study of patients with sickle cell disease. So um, very similar to the study design that Dr. C just presented. We're very early in the, the learning about this particular molecule. The healthy volunteers have already been dosed um, and the, the doses have been kind of identified that they're, they're wanting to look at. They gave a single dose, um, as Dr. C noted previously, and then this abstract is now presenting the, um, the multiple dosing. So they gave a, a single dose to sickle cell patients for 14 days. What they basically showed was that by administering a daily dose of this compound for 14 days, that they were indeed able to improve the overall health of the red blood cell. So they can decrease the 2,3 DPG levels. Um, that causes an increased oxyhemoglobin affinity. So it makes the, ox the hemoglobin hold on to the oxygen a little bit. So that should decrease sickling downstream. So that's important. Um, they're able to improve ATP levels and show that, the, that those go up just after a couple of days. And they were able to show that by reducing sickling and by improving ATP levels, they see about a gram increase in overall hemoglobin in those three patients. And they see a reduction in the markers of hemolysis. So the reticulocyte levels came down, LDH levels came down. The other interesting thing that was shown in this is they, they do this um, fancy kind of test called an Osma scan. And I don't know if the our listeners are uh, are up to date on their Osma scans or not? Mm. Probably not, right? But basically what this test shows is that um, after getting exposed to this FT4202 for 14 days, that the red blood cells um, are more flexible. And, you know, that kind of goes back to this whole idea of inhibiting the polymerization, being more flexible, being able to probably you know, you would conclude that they probably would be able to get to where they need to go and they'd be less likely to be uh, involved in a vaso-occlusive event. Kind of the take home from this, just like Dr. C said, is that, you know, this strategy of, of targeting the uh, pyruvate kinase pathway looks pretty promising. Um, this compound was well tolerated and was safe in the 14 days uh, and the handful of patients that they gave it to. Um, and the the changes that we saw with the, both the labs and within the red blood cell themselves make it um, promising to move forward to the next part of the clinical trial where they'll enroll a lot of participants, give them daily access to the medication, and then we'll look and see if there's any kind of clinical benefits such as reduction in pain or reduction in acute chest syndrome, that kind of thing. And, and that's kind of where this is. Now, I, I will say that I, I should let all of your sickle cell warriors out there know that I have, I do have a conflict on this. Um, so I have been working with this company with Forma and I'm an author on this abstract, just throwing it out there. I think that I can give you an unbiased uh, review of it, but just letting you know. That's really interesting. Are, do we know, um, even though they're very early in, in what they're doing, is there any potential side effects or did they see any side effects in that first group? Yeah, so they saw some um, arthralgias and some headaches. Nothing that, let's see, arthralgias, headache, and palpitations. But again, this was in like three or four patients. Nothing that made anyone, nothing that was severe enough that made anybody stop the taking the, the study drug. But, you know, a valid concern and things I'm sure that they'll look for in the upcoming phase three trial. Very cool. So... Dr. Smith, what are you, what are you working on? What are you, uh, you talked about that health of the red blood cell, which I think is pretty exciting as well. There's other sciences that are going after that, right? They learn from yep. someone else and they, their wheels start turning. Um, yep. Do you know of any others that might be taking on that, um, going down that pathway? Yeah, uh, I, I gotta say the best for last, I think Dr. Zaida 
is gonna uh, talk about that. You can think about hydroxyurea as the original, like old G single cell drug, right? <laughs> and everybody's trying to imitate hydroxyurea now. Mm. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And so I'm going to talk about a drug that's trying to imitate hydroxyurea, but in a different way. So remember that fetal hemoglobin way back in episode one we were talking about? That's the good hemoglobin. It's in babies. It's supposed to go away at six months. And if it doesn't go away, you are in good shape because it can protect you from sickle cell disease. And hydroxyurea boosts fetal hemoglobin. It does other stuff too but it boosts fetal hemoglobin. It's good for you. So think of Mm. hydroxyurea as a a vitamin for improving fetal hemoglobin. Well, here's another one. I only have two patients to tell you about. This one's called IMR 687. And I'm telling you about a study uh, that followed patients for about 18 months each. Uh, The total study period was for about uh, four years. And they're just telling you about two patients that they've been following. So the first person was not on hydroxyurea and their fetal hemoglobin, the good hemoglobin, went up by about four points or four percentage points from like 12 before treatment to 16 uh, at the end of treatment. The second person was on hydroxyurea at the start of treatment, he fetal hemoglobin was 20%, went up to 30% with this new drug. This, besides the laboratory stuff, they tried to wow us by telling us about how well the patients did clinically. So the first person had a drop in the number of crises by half uh, over their 18 month follow-up. And the longer they were on drug, the less likely they were to have crises. So they had more crises in the beginning and better in the end. They also did all those fancy pain surveys that you've been hearing about, the promise and the ask me and all that. And they got better uh, on those surveys. The second person uh, who was on hydroxyurea had no crises after starting this drug, whereas before they had 15 in like the year was uh, prior. So for them, you can imagine what a change in lifestyle that was. Their survey results, of course, got better. The markers, as I told you, I'm not going to read all of them. They gave you a big chart here showing you the markers for hemolysis. That's the destruction of the red blood cells. Those all got better. So this is really, really early and really, really promising in a drug that increases fetal hemoglobin by a mechanism different than hydroxyurea. Therefore, it can be given on top of hydroxyurea, and you can get, you know, double your bang in fetal hemoglobin, if you will, for the two drugs uh, compared to just hydroxyurea alone. Gives you a whole lot of promise. And these people, of course, are moving ahead in a trial. And uh, I guess I should disclose that our site will be a role patients in this trial, but I'm excited to hear uh, how this turns out. And uh, we will be blinded. We won't know whether our patients are getting the drug or getting a placebo. So presumably we'll have some objective results here in a year or two, maybe three. So I think it's pretty cool because fetal hemoglobin has been the topic of discussion since forever, right? And so a lot of people have developed kind of this so much of their their focus of how they talk to even patients about fetal hemoglobin and talk to other other providers about it, other researchers about it. I wonder if anybody else in the group has some thoughts about fetal hemoglobin and how that plays into um, some of the science, new sciences that are coming out of, of, of really what we've learned about fetal hemoglobin. I can definitely talk about it. So, you know, fetal hemoglobin certainly is the major modifier of sickle cell disease. Um, and it's not the only benefit of hydroxyurea, but it's the primary mechanism. What we're learning now and is that it is the number of kind of the higher that you can get, the better you are. That certainly is true, whether that's through pharmacologic induction or whether that's through background genetic modifiers that you happen to be born with. 
but the the real the real interesting thing that people are finding is is it's not the number of that you can get it's the number of cells that you can get it in and that is where you know we talked a little bit about this during the gene editing and the gene modifying things it's the you know if you could get the number to 20 percent which a lot of people get to with hydroxyurea but you can get it in a hundred percent of the cells you're going to dramatically change the phenotype of somebody with sickle cell disease and the the problem with hydroxyurea is you can get a fair number of people to 20% fetal hemoglobin, but you can't get them to 100% of all of the cells. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so I think that the more science that we understand about not just the how high we can get fetal hemoglobin, but how many different populations of cells we can get it into, that's going to be the, the trick. Going back to our earlier discussion, uh, part one, we took a long time talking about how many cells got transformed by the so-called curative regimens. So I want the warriors to understand what sickle cell trait is. And I'm gonna just play dumb for a moment. What's sickle cell trait? It's a single gene versus having two. Okay, and what do the blood cells look like? They're a three-quarter moon instead of... <laughs> They look normal. They look normal. And why is that, Dr. Istep? Because with only one gene, you don't make enough of the bad hemoglobin to be able to polymerize. In any cell, except under extreme circumstances like mountain climbing, scuba diving, playing so, football in Denver, that's yeah. it. Or dehydration, right? Yeah. So all the cells are safe. And that's what Dr. Eastup is trying to get across. The reason why people are excited about these so-called curative intent therapies is they're trying to make as many cells safe as possible. The drugs work by making new cells different than old cells. Hydroxyurea is the kingpin to talk about that. So is that the what, difference between responders and non-responders? It's close. If you get more cells with good hemoglobin in them, more response, less symptoms, less mm -hmm. pain, less everything. And so you don't want to get fooled into thinking that you are so-called cured, no matter what the, the way of getting there, chemical or genetic, you don't want to get fooled into thinking you're so-called cured until you get enough cells that have the good hemoglobin in them so that you never sickle. That's a very deep concept that everybody needs to understand, including me, mm -hmm. as I try to talk to my patients about these drugs. And if I, I like could that. get a little bit of this and a little bit of that to get me to the same place, why not? So multi-drug yeah. regimens is probably a better thing than just any one drug. Don't be forcing me to pick a single drug. Exactly. Love it. That's beautiful. I mean, these pipeline therapy discussions are just so fascinating. The fact that we're able to have this conversation is just, just tremendous. I know, right? Like 20 years ago, there were no drugs approved, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, just unbelievable, unbelievable. It's, it's promising and, and we have to have that hope in the community as, as a mother myself. Um, certainly my son is an adult and not a child, but as he gets older, I think about, you know, medical science when he was born, what life expectancy was then versus what it is now and where it's going to go. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the interesting thing is though, even though we're in this era of innovation, these pipeline therapies are, are coming fast. We still are learning a lot about current therapies right? We're still learning about things like hydroxyurea. We're still learning about things like Oxbrita and Adakvio and Andari, right? That the learning process doesn't stop. The science doesn't stop. We keep learning because we want to do what's best for our patients every step of the way. So some of the abstracts that we're going to talk about next are going to dive into that. It's going to be reassessing what we think about current therapies, um, and, and one really interesting abstract that I think, uh, and Ray, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Dr. Estep is going to talk about hydroxyurea a little bit in an African study. 
That's right. And which is very exciting. We oftentimes only talk about it in our, in sometimes our own backyard, but the backyard is bigger than we think. Oh, indeed. The, the sickle cell backyard is enormous. The global burden. I'm going to write that enormous. one down. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So this is a, a really interesting study. So to put it in context for the, the sickle cell warriors out there, there's about 100,000 individuals birth to death in the United States with sickle cell disease, we estimate. There are 300,000 babies born every year in Nigeria with sickle cell disease. Hmm. Um, so the, the number of individuals with the disease are enormous. It is a low income country. So the individuals that live there, regardless of whether or not you have sickle cell disease, do not necessarily have access to um, what most people would think of as state of the art medical care or inpatient hospitalization. Um, they do not do newborn screening universally to identify people with sickle cell disease. They just don't have the capacity to be able to do things like that. So, you know, in the U.S., we sometimes will argue back and forth about, you know, who should go on hydroxyurea and how do you use it? And should it be a low dose or should it be escalated to a maximum tolerated dose? In a setting like Nigeria, you can't really have those conversations because it's just not practical to be able to take hydroxyurea. Um, give it to everyone and escalate it to the highest possible dose where you have to, you know, check CBCs every month or every three months to make sure that you're not doing, you know, something that's toxic. So the question that these investigators were looking at with this particular abstract was they had already shown in a previous study that a use of um, a fixed dose of hydroxyurea, which is lower than what we use here in the U.S., was safe, it was tolerable. By doing it, they could reduce the number of children that had strokes. So this is, this is only in children who have um, abnormal TCD velocities. So here in the US, we, um, most children get screened with TCDs. If you have a high velocity of over 200 centimeters per second, then that is, that is persists, then you go on to chronic blood transfusions, usually to try to prevent an overt stroke, right? Can't do chronic transfusions in Nigeria. It's not available. They don't have access to a clean blood supply. They don't have the infrastructure to be able to do it. So in, a, in an attempt to try to reduce the number of strokes that they were seeing, they took children who were um, had elevated TCD velocities over 200 centimeters per second, and they randomized them to two doses of hydroxyurea. It was either, uh, they called it a moderate fixed dose or a low fixed dose, I think, which essentially was around um, 15 to 20 or 20 to 25 milligrams per kilogram per day. So a little bit lower than what we use here in the US. The upshot to what they found is that, the, that both of those doses were tolerable. They did not see overt toxicity profiles in either one of them. The lower dose was as effective at reducing strokes as the high dose was statistically the high dose was still a little bit better when you look at absolute numbers but the the difference wasn't dramatic based off of this this data and the work that this team has put forward the minister of health and the kind of the country of nigeria has agreed to then provide hydroxyurea for this really high risk population and monitoring for it for something like, it was an absurd number of kids. It was like 40,000 children. Both the science of this is interesting. The concept of it is interesting. But the, the true impact to children, boots on the ground children in Nigeria, is going to be dramatic. I love the fact that, you know, as we do talk about really this global backyard, right, for sickle cell, you know, there are the, the, the hands-on experiences that many have had from even traveling to those areas, seeing it firsthand, reading about it is one thing, but being in it and, and, and all the way um, interacting with those communities is something else. Is that something that you have experience in, Dr. Iskup? Yeah, so I, I actually have, we work and collaborate with Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Ghana. Um, I'm now the, just recently, as of two months ago, I took over as the director of the Global Hematology Program. So this is now a large focus of what I do 
for that very reason. I, I was exposed to it through um, doing clinical trial design and implementation. And um, we started working in sub-Saharan Africa. And then after I saw those conditions and was exposed to it, it's completely reshaped my academic trajectory. Jeremy, you're so right in terms of, I just want to just point out that, you know, as we talk about curative therapies, that's not going to be accessible to so many countries in, in sub-Saharan Africa. So we need these disease-modifying treatments, as, as, as Jeremy was saying, because we need to effectively uh, impact the burden of disease where it's currently happening, not only in Sub-Saharan Africa, also places like Caribbean and also in India. So um, we really have to, so I just hope that, you know, we understand that as we are excited about the curative therapies, that does not diminish our efforts scientifically, clinical trials-wise, in finding more and more disease-modifying treatments that would improve the access of these type of therapies to lower resource settings. I love that you pointed that out because that can get lost in translation. You know, I, I, I call it um, American privilege, right? We have access that to, to so many things and we consider our, um, our challenges, our barriers, the end all be all, but there are barriers that we've not experienced that are being experienced by others globally. Absolutely. And I think we always look at things from an American context and we think, you know, we know how to do it. And I think this is an example of a study led by people on the ground in Africa who really put together a great study in the context of what they need in their area and the context of what's possible. Um, and and I, I, you know, I, I saw some criticism of this study that said you shouldn't use low dose. Well, you know, maybe you shouldn't use low dose in the city in, in the United States, but this study made a lot of sense for what they were doing there. And I, yeah. I think, you know, the, the investigators on the study know a whole lot better than some of the people who criticized it, what they need. This fits into my mantra with hydroxyurea, right? So low dose is better than no dose. Um, That's right. right. You got to take what you can get, man. And the, the biggest bang for your buck with hydroxyurea um, with fetal hemoglobin induction is actually in that first. 10, 15, 20 per kilo, right? You can maximize the dose, but the biggest difference that you see is actually with that lower dose. That's okay. cool to know. I don't know that I yeah. knew that. Say, can yeah, you that's... say more? So are you yes. talking about uh, cell penetration? Are you talking about percent fetal hemoglobin? Yeah, so that, that's, that's off of HPLC um, and the, the, the total number. So like if you, if you take somebody and you... Um, the average person say that they have a fetal hemoglobin of 15% before you start it, right? If you, when you started at 20 per kilo, if you leave them there for a few weeks, um, they'll, they'll get about six or 7% increase in their fetal hemoglobin on average. Dose escalate them up to MTD. You don't get another, you know, seven, five, six, 7% increase. You're going to get like a three or 4% increase. The biggest bang for your buck is in that just exposure, we complain about underdosing and not going to quote MTD in the U.S. all the time. Yeah. Well, now I I, I think there, there's there's true honesty in MTD. Like I, I think that there is benefit in escalating it to get as much fetal hemoglobin as you can get because the I the that is clinically important. But the biggest impact that you can get is just by starting it in Memphis and, with lots of monitoring. <laughs> and also in, in, in uh, Europe, in Europe, and also uh, in Ghana, um, a lot of the uh, practitioners are not getting to MTD. They're sticking with 20 milligrams per kilo, and they're seeing doses. They're seeing clinical effective change. The other thing I want to just mention in Sub-Saharan Africa is there's a diff this variation in, in phenotype. Um, so the patients here in the United States are definitely different than people in Nigeria and Ghana and other parts of the world. So we cannot always, you know, lift the data from the U.S. and supplant it over to the to Ghana and Nigeria. Because yeah. let me tell you, the there is so many different factors in Sub-Saharan Africa in terms of the environment, nutrition, but also different ethnic groups 
within the countries. There's some areas where there's high amounts of uh, hemoglobin S, I mean, hemoglobin SC. There's, there's an area, also areas, for example, in northern Nigeria, where there is a background of high stroke rate. Mm -hmm. So you cannot completely compare patients from Nigeria to here in the United States. They might respond differently. So I just want to make that point, too. Well, that's a good point, because I think that, you know, as we get more more of the data that really um, identifies some of these differences, I think it can actually elevate conversations even right here in America, where we have to continually remind people that every patient is different, right? So not only is are they different on different continents, but they're different even within the same continent. And so I just think that that's a conversation that has a huge platform as we move forward. While we're talking about continents, just because I feel like I'm in a safe space and amongst friends, I'm going to say it. And a lot of people probably already know what I'm going to say. We talk about sickle cell in India. And when we talk about the Indian subcontinent, we, every time we talk about India, we exclude Pakistan and Bangladesh. And we okay. shouldn't because okay. there's like half a billion people between okay. those two countries that also struggle with sickle cell disease. So wow. let's talk about sickle cell in India, which is a problem, but let's also Excellent. talk about it in the Indian Thank subcontinent you. more Thank largely. It's interesting that that's actually a pretty large group here in Atlanta. The Pakistani community has a fair percentage of sickle cell here. And it's, it's rarely acknowledged, but it's been a very difficult group to connect with. Um, in general, let me, let me help you with that. Let me help you with that. I, I'll All help right. you connect with the Pakistani community. Those are my I will, folks. I absolutely <laughs> will connect with you there. No problem. No problem. Great. Well, we've been praising hydroxyurea. It's my. It's now my job to 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 give it the kiss of death. No, I'm not mm -hmm. kidding. Um, it, it's not all <laughs> wonderful, as many of us know. There's a black box warning on the package insert says don't touch the pills bad things could happen if you touch it mm. it scares people away they think it causes cancer people think that it's going to you know do bad things to you it takes your hair out it colors your fingernails and it may make you nauseated there's this uh dog chasing his tail thing about leg ulcers and another side effect that is batted about is, does it affect reproduction? Mm -hmm. Does it affect male reproduction? And what I'm going to talk about today is female reproduction. So here is an abstract about hydroxyurea is a potential risk factor for diminished ovarian reserve in young adults with sickle cell anemia. Now, mind you, it's not a whole lot of patients that they study, something like uh, 16 patients, I think. And they, they were pretty much 17 or 18 years of age before they uh, started being studied. But what they found was a suggestion by comparing three groups, the group that was um, studied newly, African-American controls, age matched, and the old MSH cohort, the original uh. study for hydroxyurea, and they looked at some lab values, and then they looked at these measures. Think about a chicken. Chicken has only so many eggs, right? They're gonna lay so many eggs before they, before they croak. And they're born with a potential number of eggs. The same it is with humans. Humans are born, females are born with a, a, a limited number, not limited, but a finite number of eggs that they can quote, lay. And if you reduce the egg laying potential of a female with drugs or, or radiation or whatnot, you're gonna decrease the likelihood that they can get pregnant. And so they just studied 16 women uh, and they looked at their egg laying capacity uh, using chemical means, using uh, egg stimulating hormone. I'm using, these are not scientific terms that I'm using. <laughs> and, uh, and they looked at uh, a third Thank method goodness. to try to figure out whether hydroxyurea affects those things. And they found out basically that the sickle cell patients they studied looked affected and so did everybody in the hydroxyurea study from way back, but not as much as egg laying uh, 
females and who were age match African-Americans. Now, sickle cell disease by itself probably affects your egg laying capacity. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is it the drug or is it the disease? And this is an exploratory study inviting more study of whether hydroxyurea in addition to the drug, whether hydroxyurea has an independent effect on egg laying capacity in uh, females. I wonder how people feel about this. This is a topic that we struggle with, right? So, and, and this is the way I tell my families and have this conversation with them. So if you asked me about any other organ, I would say that sickle cell disease will damage it, right? So over time, you're gonna get brain damage, you're gonna get heart damage, kidney damage, same thing goes with testes and ovaries. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, right? What do we know about hydroxyurea? Well, we know that it probably protects brain damage. We know that it probably prevents kidney damage. Um, it's been associated with a reduction in mortality in adults who take it, right? So could there be a theoretical risk through, by the way that it works, that it might impact fertility? Maybe, but it hasn't been shown. But it has been shown to protect other organs, and it's been shown that if you take it, you live longer. That in and of itself increases potentially your long-term fertility because you won't have any children if you're not alive. That's the conversation. I, I think that the this is, ne- this is never going to be answered because it's always going to have too many confounders. What came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> you know what, though? I feel like we also know a few other things about hydroxyurea. For example, we know that it is an S phase specific ribonucleotide reductase inhibitor. We know the phase in the cell cycle that it's affecting. And we know some things about the reproductive organs and follicle stimulating hormone. And so it seems to me that there are some guesses that we can make there and that there might be some, I feel like I'm often the hydroxyurea villain in any room because hydroxyurea is not the cochlear implant of sickle cell disease. It was not this cure-all that it was often presented as, particularly when I was younger and a teenager and was vilified for not wanting to be on it at first. And it, it there are a percentage of non-responders and there oh, are people who Definitely. will always be concerned about fertility. And fertility is a thing that is, from my experience, not taken seriously in sickle cell and it's not taken seriously in black women in general. And so um, the, the how hard I had to fight just for fertility preservation with the bone marrow transplant was just ridiculous. And so I think we can assume that with further study, there might actually be something there, whether or not it's worth it. I'm still going to have a transplant despite the fact that I know it will affect my fertility. Okay. And these are decisions that we have to put in front of people. This okay. may affect your fertility, but you have a decision to make. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, the conversation should certainly be had. My point was that I don't think that the, we'll ever answer this question with hydroxyurea. I don't think it's possible. Well, I'm glad that you bring say- that up because it's, it's the uncertainty that really causes um, patients and families to, to second guess um, what their decision is going to be. They're, you can't make an informed decision without feeling informed, right? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. how do we, it's, it's really how are we structuring that conversation right. to make sure that we are very transparent and this is what we know versus this is what we don't know, but we're still trying to understand. Yeah. So I think, I think you I think you make a great point with Jeremy's coming from, because I'm, I'm, I'm in that group too. I think what I've learned recently is that we don't know a lot about hydroxyurea. We, when, I think when the studies came out, we had, we were so desperate to do something for sickle cell. We were so narrow focused. We don't need anything. We don't need anything else. Hydroxyurea, you're fine. And that's all talking to people like Dr. Smith and some other adults it's like, you know, the bone marrow may not be healthy. You know, if we started in our teenagers, you know, why not? We're getting the same response. You know, we realize that we didn't study this drug very well from the start. I'm 100% supportive of it, but 
I am now more understanding what maybe why individuals may not want to be on it, as Dr. Bailey has said, because we haven't studied it like other drugs that have gone through, you know, for cancer, other drugs, um, it did not go through the same rigor. And some of those unwanted um, questions, you know, those uncomfortable questions about reproductive health, you know, we, we usually jump through, and we always jump to it, as, as I used to say, you know, let's get, let's, let's actually get you to 20 so you can have that question, right? But also, I think when you start thinking about combination therapy, these other drugs, maybe we can lower the dose of hydroxyurea, do combination therapy, so we actually can mitigate the risk of hydroxyurea, and maybe we can use that for 20 years in combination of these new drugs, so we don't have any, you know, significant side effects to our bone marrow and other unwanted side effects. So I think when you come, you know, you combine them, it actually can be very helpful, you know, down the line for a lot of my, a lot of our patients. Way back in 2008, hydroxyurea underwent a microscopic review. Basically, the decision was being made, are we going to call this a public health good and start, and start to encourage people everywhere to give hydroxyurea? We put guidelines together. It was a wonderful time. Lots of evidence-based medicine. This is where you go through and, and you know, scour every study ever done for benefits and harms, and you come up with an answer, yeah, beneficial or yeah, harmful. One place where people were still sort of silent about hydroxyurea after that evidence-based review and back in 2008 was this place right here. Mm -hmm. And they would still have to be silent because the data that we have is all suspect. So like my, my approach to this has become less of helping, you know, tying a rope to patients and pulling them up with you over the mountain. And as far as therapy is concerned and more so being a Sherpa, right? Um, present the data, acknowledge what you know and what you don't know and, 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 and let the patients make the decision, right? Um, because in the end, really that's, that's what needs to happen is we need to present the data and we have a blueprint sometimes with sickle cell disease as what we think therapy should look like, but our priorities and sickle cell patient and family priorities sometimes don't align. And, and that's yes. okay. And that's, that's okay. called shared decision-making mm -hmm. warriors. Yes. Listen to this shared decision-making. You have a say in what medicines you get. You and your doctor can decide together. What's right for you is not right for your neighbor. You don't have to do what everybody else is doing. You can be different. That includes yeah. doing something that nobody else is willing to like bone marrow transplantation or gene therapy. But it also includes not taking a drug that everybody else is taking, like hydroxyurea. And guess what? Your decisions might change over time depending on your circumstances. Just because you answer the question this year doesn't mean it's the same answer next year. Yeah, and I've met, I mean, we all have these hydroxyurea adopters, right, that come to us a few years later and they're like, you know what? I think I really want to be on hydroxyurea now. And, um, you know, I, I, I have always felt like it's been a, it's a physician problem. It's a problem in how we talk about it or how we educate about it. Uh, right. we can't convey the medical message, then that's a failure on us. It's not a failure on the patient. And I, I think that's what we're trying to do here is, you know, get the data out in a digestible way. And I, I think it's a, not an easy thing to do. So I think you could look at this study and say, Yep, it shows that hydroxyurea causes fertility issues. But I think if you take a step back, what it shows is that hydroxyurea uh, results in maybe lower, uh, lower levels of anti-malarian hormone, which could be related to ovulation. But I think Jeremy's point's well taken that, you know, to look at really fertility issues, you got to look at fertility, not at anti-malarian hormones. And if hydroxyurea makes you live longer and healthier, it might help with fertility. So I think like a lot of good science, and this is good science, it brings up more questions. Um, so, it, you know, answer something, but brings up more questions. So I, I think, you know, this put a flag on a map of an area we need to do a lot more studying. By the way, a whole lot of babies have been born to people on hydroxyurea. There you go. Yes, yes, yes sir. Right. Yes, they have. There you go. <laughs>
Yeah, well, I, I, you know, this conversation has my wheels turning because so oftentimes we put all, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to run with, with your analogy, Dr. Smith. So often we put all of our eggs in one basket, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Dr. Campbell hit on something and he talked about something that I talk about. And in full disclosure, I also work within our pediatric clinic. And that is, do we get stuck in this either or, or, or are we an and? Right. And so how do we couple these new therapies with old therapies and how do we compare them when we haven't had many choices? So we tend to lean towards something that's been around the longest and think that it's it's tried, trusted and true. And we don't question it as much as we may question something new. But there's new things coming with so much of this new technology. And Oxbrida is one of them. And so how does that now fit in to all of this, not either or, but and discussions? I just yeah. want to comment. Uh, you said that new things were coming. That's true. They're here. They're but here. They're here. They're yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. I, you know, again, so I have, I, this is my section. So I'm, I'm going to cover a little bit about the updates on Oxbrida. So we're going to do this quickly because I recognize we're running out of time here. So. <laughs> What we know about Oxprida is that this is a medication that's FDA approved for one indication. And that indication is to be used in individuals who are 12 and older with sickle cell disease to increase their hemoglobin. We don't necessarily at this point have confirmation of a clinical benefit from that parameter, right? What we have is a lot of science that tells us if you're more anemic, and your red blood cells break open faster, you're more sick and you die quicker. So the, we have every reason in the world to think that if your hemoglobin is higher and your red blood cells don't break open as much, you might be healthier and you might live longer. That's the spirit here. Now, Oxbrida has been in market since November of 2019. What was presented at ASH was an update on the data. This was a trial that looked at First, what happened at six months into this trial starting? So week 24, did we meet what we needed to meet from a endpoint standpoint? So the primary endpoint was how many patients got to a gram of hemoglobin or higher. And what they found was 51% of patients at six months in got to that one gram higher hemoglobin compared to 7% in placebo. So they also... Dr. Z, can, can you comment? Um, we say that one gram per deciliter increase, but do you think your sickle cell warriors would like to know what that equates to? Yeah. So like if we're talking about an adult sickle cell warrior, right? Like a bag of blood being transfused is, is about a gram, gram of hemoglobin increase, right? So that's kind of the way that I present it to patients. So it's, it, it's meaningful. It's meaningful. And, and, and we've had the opportunity to observe now this drug in our patients, in the clinic, all of us. And we've seen what it's done. But the question was, what happens now at week 72? So if we continue to follow these patients, there's a few questions we have. So number one, is it dangerous to increase hemoglobin in this fashion? Is anything bad going to come from it? Are people going to have strokes? Are people going to have more pain? Up to week 24, it looked like that wasn't the case. There were no strokes. There was no tangible increase in pain. And at week 72, which was what was presented at ASH, it seemed like that was consistent. So it was durable in its response as far as hemoglobin staying high. It seemed like the vast majority of patients at some point got to one gram higher hemoglobin. It seemed like their hemolytic markers also came down. But more importantly, they showed similar safety signals. So the biggest safety signals we've seen in Oxbrida have been things like diarrhea, allergic reaction in the form of rash, hypersensitivity, and that holds true. Those adverse events seem to continue through in that 72-week period. We also see that individuals who hit the highest hemoglobin levels were actually the ones that had the least amount of pain, right? So when they look backwards, they see that there's a reduction in the amount of pain those people had stepwise if they had hemoglobins of 12 and higher. So Dr. Smith talks about something called the CGIC. So, so what is the CGIC? Well, for a long time, we have talked about 
patient reported outcomes in, a, in an effort to see if we can track quality of life. Yes, this drug makes me feel better, but what questions can I ask to capture that spirit? Can I capture what this drug actually is doing in a patient's life in a meaningful way? And from a, from a, for a very long time in sickle cell disease, we've not done this well. We haven't found a way to um, really capture the spirit of that. What Dr. Smith comes along and helps you know, the folks at Global Blood Therapeutics do is capture a little bit of that. So there's something called the clinical global impression of change. And this is a really broad way to capture what we all sometimes feel, but don't really know how to measure well. So the CGIC is something that's being used in other disease spaces, specifically in the psychiatry field. But basically what it does is it rates patients. Are they very much improved or are they very much worse on the seven point scale? And what's found is that by the end of week 72, 74% of patients, so 39 out of 53, according to the clinician, are either very much improved or moderately improved compared to 47% in the placebo arm. And then they compare that to baseline hemoglobin status. They compare that along the lines of hemolytic markers like you know, increased jaundice, increased reticulocyte count, and they find it consistently across the way that this CGIC score as an exploratory endpoint shows that regardless of baseline hemoglobin level or baseline markers of hemolysis, there was an improvement. Patients felt better as determined by their clinician. There was also a patient version of this, right, Dr. Smith? There is. A, it, it, it was the first one. Yeah. Yeah, a, they first yeah. asked patients uh, in rheumatoid arthritis, especially, because it, it's hard to know how your joints are doing <laughs> because they don't really change. But they asked the patients, hey, you feeling any better? <laughs> Basically, are you doing better? <clears throat> yeah. And so that's how we got to where we were with the uh, patient global impression of change. And, and, and that, I think that's awesome because we, we've seen that it's been difficult to capture the spirit of change. Uh, as these therapies come out, it's been really difficult to capture the nuance associated with new therapies and how it impacts patients' lives. So um, that's the update from Oxbrita, Ray. And um, that, that's that 72-week data that we've been eagerly anticipating. And, and there it is. That's really excellent. And I, I'm, I'm so glad that there are actually um, patient reported outcomes because that's important because what a provider may see may be different than what the lived experience of that patient might feel. And then you have, let's just call it out. Sometimes there, there are certain unconscious biases that may impact how they report. So we have to get both perspectives, right? Because the way that your doctor sees you is going to oftentimes impact your plan of care. Whereas the way that you're feeling, you have to be able to communicate that to your doctor so that they can take that into consideration um, in how they develop and how you develop your plan of care together. That's that shared decision-making, right? So this is excellent. This, this whole discussion about not just what's, not just what is coming, but what is already here and what we're learning about it as we go. It is still new, but it's incredibly promising. And that's what science is all about, is what's promising and what we've learned along the way. Uh, that's so well said. And, um, you know, as we as we bring this to a close, I just want to say how immensely proud I am of the fact that we were all able to get together and do this, you know, for, for the longest time I've been, I've been thinking about this concept and, and Dr. Bailey was on the same wavelength, Ray was on the same wavelength. Um, you know, we see these best of ash, best of conference events for physicians all the time, right? People can come and attend what, what happened at ash, what's well, important for me to know but we forget about the patients. We forget about the main stakeholder, right? This is, this is all for the patients. So if we can't convey this information to the patients, what, are, what is this all for? What, like, what are we doing here, right? So, so thank you all. Thank you all for being part of this. Thank you guys for taking time out of your busy schedules on a weekend to, to, to have this conversation with us. Dr. Bailey. Yes, thank you all so much. And we're very excited to continue these with each new meeting to bring this information to the patient and to the community. I think Ray made a really good point. And she said, um, how can you be, how can you do informed consent if you're not well informed? And I think the same goes with research and making decisions. You can't 
um, hope to be able to make decisions on participating in research and what medicines to take if you're never included in the conversations. So thank you all for being willing to come, willing to come and talk to us about this. And we're looking forward to continuing these conversations with you. And I'm gonna give one more shameless plug. And that is one of the most effective parts of what I do, um, not as a caregiver and not necessarily as a, a, a leader in on our local CBO, but that is being embedded within the medical team. So, so much of the conversations that I have between um, the, the, the providers and the family is translating all of this mm -hmm. information in an informative way. So whether it's a community health worker, whether it's a patient navigator, whether it's a patient advocate, the, 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 the collaborative nature of making sure that you have someone who can understand that lived experience, but also understands the science, can make the difference between someone who feels that they can make informed decisions and someone who doesn't feel that they have the information to make those decisions. Absolutely. And warriors who are listening um, to this podcast, don't forget that you can grab more information at our Warrior University, where we will be continuing up with many of these topics. We covered a lot of innovation. We covered a lot of clarifications. We, um, we, we handled our business today. Hey, you know what, though? Um, Doing yeah. it has not only been fun, but every time we do something like this, it makes me hopeful for what's coming. Because things are just getting better, man. This is it. This, this is, is the time the we've time. been waiting for. They're going to write about it, just like you said. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, with that all said, Warriors, keep living well with Sickle Cell. And uh, thank you to Agios for sponsoring this series. Uh, stay tuned, man. We're going to have more coming for you. Uh, make sure you follow the consortium, Warrior University. Make sure you follow these Sickle Cell docs, Dr. Wally Smith, the Godfather, Dr. Jeremy Eastep, Mr. Worldwide. Andrew Campbell, Dr. Drew, uh, of course, Dr. C and uh, Dr. Z. We'll, we'll, we'll catch you next time. Peace.